Hey, and welcome back to 52 Founders. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm joined by Fred Stephen-Smith, co-founder and CEO of Rainforest QA. Rainforest combines a massive crowd of human testers with algorithmic management and virtual machines to execute web and mobile regression testing for continuous deployment. I've been eyeing the company for quite a while and was eager to learn more about Fred's beginnings. His innate candor and clear company vision made Fred one of my favorite founders yet, and I'm so excited for you all to take a listen. And with that, here's Fred. Thank you. Um, so let's start by telling us about your background and what Rainforest QA is. Uh, sure. So I am a founder from London. Um, my background is various semi-successful entrepreneurial projects before Rainforest. Um, and Rainforest is a on-demand QA team that is powered by uh, a huge crowd of humans all over the world and is kind of managed algorithmically. You can think of us like the Uber for QA. Do you like saying the Uber for anything? I feel like that's uh, I mean, now been the term that people avoid. <laughs> it sucks, but it, it accurately captures like the delivery side of our business, you know? Yeah. So it's a good metaphor. So how did you come up with this idea for Rainforest QA since, you know, especially given the rise of automating QA as we were seeing before? Um, yeah, I mean, in short, we asked people what problem they had and they told us. And that's how we started doing QA in the first place. And what we saw was that, um, you know, when we started to look into the QA market, we saw that really none of the solutions were really fit for purpose. And the purpose was clear, right? The purpose was how can we have good assurance of our quality while also shipping really, really quickly, right? And that's the question. And Ultimately, if you go to your friends that have automation inside their company and you ask them, are you assured of your quality? Do you trust that when all of your testing passes, you can release and it's going to be good? The answer is no. And so even though automation was a big step forward for us as an industry, it still hasn't really got us to the point where companies can use automation to trust in their releases and give the reins, give the hat, the keys to production over to every developer. Um, and so we saw an opportunity there and I think that the market has kind of proven us right so far. Do you think it's more that companies view you as a way to outsource their QA entirely or even if you could replace, you know, one or two engineers, there's your contract value? Or is it more that people are so nervous about having bugs post-production that they're willing to invest even more on top of their resources? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, we don't really see either right now. What we see more is that people are focused on speed and they are realizing that QA is slowing them down. And so I think that when when you speak to most of our customers and when we have most of our conversations that we have every day with, you know, prospects in our funnel, the the conversation boils down to as a business we've realized we need to move faster. We need our dev process to support that speed. And we also need to maintain a certain quality bar. And we don't have a way to get all of those things together, you know? And so 
usually for those companies, Rainforest represents some sort of third option of like, this isn't just kind of manual testing. This isn't just automation where you have to lean so heavily on your developers. It's some middle ground. And I think what's really important for us when we think about outsourcing, which is a word that you mentioned, when we think about outsourcing, in general, outsourcing has been driven purely by cost, right? Companies wanted to decrease costs of a thing that they do every day, and so they put it somewhere where the labor is cheaper. Mm. Um, it's very, very different for Rainforest, right? We are, in many cases, displacing outsourcing, either through BPOs or through ODESK or whatever. We're displacing outsourcing with new customers that we go into. And the reason for that is that the outsourcing relationship has cost advantages, but speed-wise, efficiency-wise, it doesn't, right? Outsourcing, the best in class is you have an overnight QA run mm -hmm. while your Pacific time devs are asleep, right? And so that's still a 12-hour turnaround time. And with Rainforest, we're talking about 30 minutes. So it's just a completely different level of service, and that's being driven by the customer adopting this continuous delivery methodology. And so outsourcing and any other manual approach becomes too slow, you know? So really the right way to think about it from our perspective is there's a bunch of things that you have to do to deliver high quality customer experiences to your customer when you build software. And a lot of those things are not really value adds. They are more like insurance, right? And so I would think of, for example, QA as being one of them. I would think of probably performance testing, security testing, arguably usability testing as being in one of those kind of insurance type categories where ultimately, as long as there's no massive security flaw, your customer doesn't care that you're doing security testing. Your customer doesn't care you're doing performance testing. That's a, um, that's a kind of hoop you have to jump through in order to deliver a high quality user experience. That's not core to your job as a developer or your product manager or as someone building great software. You know, that's more like a distraction. Yeah. So our vision of the world is that Creative people that build great software do not need to be distracted by all of these, you know, gritty kind of nuts and bolts that have to be done in order to build that world-class experience. Mm -hmm. No, I find that really interesting because it's basically saying these are required, but not necessarily what makes great products. Um, and yes. it's not something I know any devs really like to do. So yeah. you're solving a pain point, but also the budget is enormous for companies because I think when I was working um, at developer companies, all we kept hearing was security and testing were the biggest pain points yeah. and also the biggest budgets, especially security. Yep. Um, and so now let's talk about what it's like to be in San Francisco. So you said you're from London. Did you ever consider starting Rainforest anywhere else? No. No? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh... Was it just Y Combinator or you were here already you wanted to stay? Um, no, no, we, we, chose, we chose California and America first and YC second. Um, uh, well, so I had a fairly unique set of experiences growing up in that I had started, um, you know, of course, semi-successful, very small, low-scale technology companies, but technology companies nonetheless in three different countries before I came here. So I lived in, in London, I was, grew up in London, so I did my first business. Then after that, I lived in France during some of my university in Paris. And then I lived in Berlin after university for two years where I did my first company. Then I moved back to London. Then I came here. And so my little kind of journey around the world gave me some, I guess, 
interesting perspectives on the value of, and I'm making big kind of air quotes on my fingers here, the value of startup ecosystems. Because I was living in London when it was considered and claimed, and there was lots of articles about it being one of the next big startup ecosystems. Same with Berlin, same with Paris, right? And what I saw in each of those was that, and, and let me caveat all of this by saying, great companies can be built anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter where you are, right? This is all about, as an entrepreneur, your job is to de-risk your chances of success as much as possible. And I think that it's pretty hard for any entrepreneur to, ask, uh, to argue that it is less risky to build a company outside of Silicon Valley. Um, and especially if you're you know, first-time founder. Um, and for me, it was very simple. It was that talent in the ecosystem is everything. Talent of founders, talent of investors, talent of founders who've exited and now reinvesting back into the ecosystem. And unfortunately, my perspective is that globally, there is a self-selecting move towards Silicon Valley. And so when I lived in Paris, I saw that the best founders in Paris were trying to all get to London because the best VCs in Europe were in London giving the best terms. Mm. I saw the same thing in Berlin. And so you ended up with this creaming off of talent, which was also repeated in London, but focused on either New York or San Francisco, mm. right? You ended up with this creaming off of talent where the best startups, you know, they got their start, they built their MVP, maybe they hired their first few engineer, engineers or team members in London, in Berlin, in Paris, and then they got the hell out as soon as possible. And they got the hell out as soon as possible to raise seed money on terms that weren't egregious. And so what I've observed, and I've seen the same pattern as I've gone back, you know, since the five years that we started Rainforest, um, what I've observed is just that the best talent always seeks to put itself in a position where it can really exploit its advantages. And ultimately, you're capping your potential when you're a huge fish in a small pond. And I think that from my perspective, um, that's the problem with any of the kind of support ecosystems out there, um, unless you're serving a meaningfully different customer. And it seems to me that potentially China, potentially India are the two areas where that might actually be true. Even though if you look at the market cap of technology companies in both China and India, um, and you look at the distribution of um, wealth through software companies there, um, it's a lot more concentrated. There's been far fewer successes. So I think it remains to be seen how those dollars get fed back into the ecosystem, which is ultimately how we had Silicon Valley in the first place. You know? Yeah, well, that's what makes me a little sad, I think, when I see, you know, you said you mentioned Paris and Berlin going to London. Yeah. But what you need then for an ecosystem to really thrive halfway around the world, um, would that just be, you know, you like a different quality of life? Um, I mean, London and SF are pretty different cities. Yeah. Um, but it would be that companies like yourself end up staying in those ecosystems, growing and IPOing there, and then having spin-offs. So maybe in a generation, or not in a, a decade, it could be, you know, a new ecosystem like that. But maybe I'm also just being optimistic. It could be. London. It could be, right? Like, I, I'm with you as well. It'd be better for everybody if this was a more decentralized world, right? But... I think that I, I don't see that dynamic changing in a meaningful way, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's switch. You mentioned a little bit about your childhood. So you grew up in London, proper city. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what did your parents do for a living? Do you have any siblings? Uh, yeah, I have two siblings, both younger. And yeah, my parents, my dad is like a real estate guy. 
My mum was a marketing exec um, before being a house mum. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, mine was not. So, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a young kid? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, like, standard bullshit boy stuff like a fighter pilot or a <laughs> fireman or whatever you know I don't know nothing I didn't have any real meaningful career aspirations I think the only thing was that I saw you know our family tradition was every night 7pm family dinner all sit there all the kids from the age of zero till the age of 18 when I left home and I think that what that did for us was it and my dad was running his own business. My mom was like running her career until she stopped and ran, ran us and the family. But we were all part of a lot of the decisions that my dad made in his business. You know, he would come back at the end of the day and we would discuss them as a family all together. And so I think that, you know, both me and my sister run our own businesses now. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with how we were brought up to basically see problems and discuss them and analyze them and make decisions. And it was always just obvious to us that like, yeah, you can work for yourself. That's awesome. It's great to work for yourself. That's a good thing. You, you can have that as an objective, you know? It was never a thing in our family like, now when you grow up, you need to go and be a lawyer and be successful and work for a big logo that brings security. Like, no one ever said that. So your dad would actually tell you his business problems when you were even young children. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, like your parents, like venting about their day or whatever. But in our case, it was like, you know, talking through the decisions they had to make. And they're very collaborative people. So they would always ask us like what we thought, you know, and I, I, I don't know, I guess in some subconscious sense that started prepping me for, <laughs> for no, starting a company. <laughs> I, think it's, well, I think it's extremely empowering, but also it's a diversity perspective. And so, um, yeah, you know, when I look at venture capital firms right now, we obviously like genders, the big diversity question, but I actually think diversity of you know operating backgrounds diversity of race diversity of age is really interesting to me as well yep um and it's funny you bring that up because i imagine like a child or even a teenager looking at problems doesn't see everything that your parents do exactly um, and so do you try to bring that empowerment and diversity perspective now into your own company like how do you guys if especially you know i find that you get siloed in team and actually um, I loved my job at my last company because it was so horizontal and cross-functional. So I got to sit on sales, marketing and kind of see how things work together or, yeah. you know, product. Um, so how do you do that? How do you ingrain that into Rainforest? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 the, the, the real answer is I have no idea. Um, I, I know that we try and do lots of things to make that happen. I, I think, you know, the the simple answer for all of these questions about any business is just it's about the people mm -hmm. and I think that people model behaviors that they've seen be successful and so I think ultimately as a founder your job is to um, embody the behaviors that you want to see in the rest of your team I think people that work for me would tell you that I'm very opinionated I'm very focused on outcomes and success I'm very focused on long term like the future and I think they would also tell you that I don't really have a lot of um, ego around ideas and in general I am looking to be a facilitator rather than like the guy spouting from the mountaintop and I think that has had a big impact on how those leaders run their teams as well um, so if you were to ask me, is Bainforest a very collaborative place to work relative to most software companies, I would say yes. 
Um, but I think the real <laughs> the the real judge of that is the people in the company, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, beyond modeling it, I, I don't really know to be honest. I, I think also one other thing on the kind of negative side is don't reward politics. Um, I think that's also really important. Very often people see communication as a way to advance their own agenda. Um, and for me, that's basically the definition of politics. Whereas um, other people see, inf- see communication as a way to um, share the truth so that they can get, share their truth so that they can get closer to a communal truth, you mm-hmm. know? And I think that you have to be super careful as a leader and obviously as a founder as like the ultimate leader of any startup. You have to be super careful about the behaviors that you reward. We've had super high performing people that we've let go because they were just ultra political, you know? Um, and we've had super low performing people where, um, where they've been amazing members of the team where we've also had to let them go. Yeah. And so I think it's also like the signals that you send to the company through who succeeds and thrives and who doesn't, you know, and making sure that everyone understands, like, listen, we have a, a standard of excellence that we expect, but no matter how excellent you are, it doesn't mean that you can be an asshole or make work harder for other people, you know? Yeah. I love that, though, also, your family had these you know, the importance of being together at 7 p.m. And so one of the things I I think is really interesting about the Valley and working at, you know, three startups here is the culture of how you view work-life balance. And I think that's actually a great way to get diversity perspective because a lot of startups, the lifestyle is only, you know, someone only my age or younger would be able to work there. You know, you make it impossible to say like, oh, you have a family or you have commitments. And so do you find that to be really important? I know the U.S. sometimes I feel that, um, you know, they have this ability, like if you're at work, you work, you means you're working the hardest because you're staying the longest. Right. Which I always find, it's funny because I was talking to these Swedes when I was in Europe recently and they were saying in Sweden, naturally it's views as detrimental because it means you can't get your work done in the same amount of time. Totally. That other people can. Yeah. Um, and so since you're European, I was wondering if you, what kind of mindset do you see and how you see that in America? Yeah, I mean, we definitely, you know, me and Russell, my co-founder, we definitely realized this very early on that we had a different perspective to most of the founders that we were in YC with, right? Like, we didn't, we didn't work Sundays ever. And for most of our, you know, kind of peer group in YC, that was basically heresy. That was like, you are going to fail. You don't care enough. <laughs> you don't care enough. Yeah, you don't care enough. Right. And of course you feel lots of guilt around yeah, that. Yeah, because you want to have, you know, maybe recharge your brain for a day. Yeah, I know. Something crazy like not work seven out of seven days. Yeah. And and so I think, you know, there's lots of like individual tactical points that I could share. But I think really the strategic learning, the meta learning for me is like believe in your own approach you know like we saw so many companies who grew faster than us who had bigger brands than us where we felt kind of inadequate and like oh these guys are so much these guys or gals are so much better than us right you, you go through IC or a program like it you're, you're alongside 80 other peer companies yeah. you're all starting from roughly the same place and so you can quickly see like damn these are the ones who are really good and what's interesting for me at least is that we were very insecure about the various things we believed in at that point. For example, we believed in not working on the weekend. We believed in having breaks. We believed in taking vacation where you seriously take vacation, you don't write emails. 
you know, we believed in if you have a child, you should take some time off. You know, like just things like that where it put us clearly in a different perspective than every other California-founded startup that we came across, you know, in our experience. And I think that caused us a lot of, like, questioning our own decisions. Mm -hmm. And I'm really, really happy that we never back down from those things that we believe to be important because ultimately some of the people that have impacted Rainforest the most have been parents, you know? Mm -hmm. And we would never have such a diverse group of people working at Rainforest. And to your point, diversity in terms of, you know, gender and race, but also age, also economic background, also familial situation, you know what I mean? There's so many different aspects to that. We would never be the company we are today if we hadn't in the early days set up a culture which said, hey, listen, it's awesome for you to have a fucking life, right? Like, that's actually cool. Have a life. Work and life, two separate things, not the same thing. If you believe they're the same thing, go work at Uber, right? Like, you'll have a great time there. You won't have a great time here. And I think sticking to your guns on that is hard, right? Yeah. Like, anyone who believes in any of those philosophies, someone on your team eventually leaves at 5 p.m. every day. And it's really hard to get out of the mindset of, like, why the fuck are they leaving? (laughs) you know like 5 p.m you're just done every day at 5 p.m and so it's hard to stick to your guns it's hard to say like no hours work don't don't matter productivity does that's really hard well actually i'm a big believer that the signals come from your boss which come from their boss actually which comes from you guys um you know at my last company i was working part-time because i was going to business school at the same time which meant I was the weirdo sending, you know, emails late at night, but I made sure <laughs> right. my team knew it was like, this is my choice because I'm taking class during the day. Right. Which is the same as like, if you took a, you know, that's your time to yourself. Class was my time to myself. Yes. Um, and I was very big. I love that. I interviewed Jason Freed recently and we talked about like, you know, he just keeps us like, I view this, you know, at base camp, we love remote workers. If you want to be in the office, um, we talked about how to create cohesion but more so how to create a life outside of work and basically people are more interesting, you get these different opinions, but it is so easy to compare yourself, particularly in the Valley. Yes. Um, and so I want to ask you about pivoting since you were in YC. Yeah. You came in, what I believe is for a different idea. Yep. How do you not freak out that you're pivoting when you're like weeks away from demo day <laughs> and everyone else is you know, ahead of you? Yeah. Well, you do freak out. <laughs> that's, that's the answer. You just lose it. Just well, I mean, I think, I mean, you know this, right? But the, the the thing that's never talked about because it's not like sexy and it's like really ephemeral and hard to get your ha- your kind of hands around, or your teeth around, is is the psychology of startups. And honestly, you know, my my a good friend of mine asked me this recently. Was like and they didn't they weren't they weren't wanting or expecting this answer because we were talking about meditation or whatever and they were like when was the last time you felt truly relaxed and at peace and I answered honestly and I answered the night we got the phone call from YC telling us <laughs> we got into YC and that's honestly not a joke you know like about three years ago five years five ago five years ago <laughs> May May 2012 and you know it's not a joke right like it's funny I laugh at it because I'm like I can't believe that that's true but I also know it's true but the point is just that the main thing that you sign up for as a founder is the uh, emotional and psychological resilience required to withstand the stress of being a founder. And when I look around the team, 
and I look at these people who are incredibly smart, have had long successful careers, who we're amazingly lucky to manage to convince to join our team. And they're looking to me to make decisions. They're looking to me for feedback, for advice. I'm like, why? You know, <laughs> honestly, that's part of it. It's like, why? And like, you can call that, if I was less of a white male, you would call that imposter syndrome. Like, I just call it logical, you know? Like, I, this is my first real company. A bunch of my VPs, they've, this is their fifth company they've IPO'd before, you know? And so it's like, but all of that to say, like, the reason why is because I am the type of person, as are probably the people listening to this podcast and the other people that you're interviewing, I'm the type of person who is actually going to start the company. And I have, every friend I have has an idea. Every friend you have has an idea, right? Oh, well, definitely in the Valley. Yeah. But even in London now, even I'm seeing yeah. my friends who are like, you know, working for the government or working for newspapers, they have ideas, but they're just not doing them. And I think that it's a very interesting thing because when you look around your, your, when you look around at a group of people and you see everyone being smarter and more talented than you, but yet you're somehow the one that they all report to, you're like, how can this be? And the real answer is that you were the one who was willing to take the plunge and then endure the stress <laughs> for the amount of time it took to become successful. And when I look at the 85 or so companies that started alongside us in YC, and of those, there are about 10 that are alive and thriving today, right? Us being one of them. When I look at why each one of those dropped out along the way, it always comes down to that founder psychology. Ultimately, no matter what the reason they gave was, we ran out of money, co-founder dispute, couldn't find product market fit, our VC wouldn't give us a series B, whatever it was, the actual answer is they gave up. And they gave up because they couldn't withstand the immense psychological stress of having this thing, you know, this startup on their shoulders. That's not a judgment of them, right? It doesn't make you a bad person. Not at all. Not at all. Like, the reason I started this podcast was I was saying, every founder I knew is a really different personality. Why are picking, people picking the riskiest career, in my opinion, you can have? Yeah. And as much as I love founders, I think my brother is CEO as well, so yeah. I hear a lot about the candid stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's more, you know, it is not for everyone. And I think uh, in Silicon Valley, people really, you know, laud founders, and I do as well, but mostly because, um, and what I think about from VCs is, like, even if you're going to reject someone, you have to realize this is someone's life and that we're giving their life for this. Um, and yeah. so to have that respect for people that are doing it because it is such a burden. Yeah. 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 And that's something that is just impossible to understand until you do it yourself, you know? Yeah. And, and I would encourage anyone who's listening to this who has an idea and is wondering whether they have what it takes, just start the thing, for God's sake. It's never been easier to start a thing make a website, form a Delaware Corp, you know, like you can do all that stuff, hold down your regular job, start yeah. a thing, start failing, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> I think that's why people think, like when I was going to start this podcast show, it was going to be a blog, my friend that taught me Terry Stebbings was, I was inspired by these brief conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interviewing people lets me talk less, you know, I get to talk to smarter people than me. <laughs> um, but it was more, you know, I know, I know shit about podcasting, but you know, it's like, you just teach yourself in a week and you realize you'll be fine. Yeah. And you do, or at least what I did was to hold myself accountable, call it 52, so I have to do at least 52. Yep. Um, tell, I read a blog post I was going to launch next week and I was like, right, it's time to get to work or then I'll just be really embarrassed. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. 
Exactly. And this could be the, the first step of a giant media empire for you, Probably, right? Probably, yeah. And I do have a really good voice for that. <laughs> you do, you do. It's the androgynous voice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I, I think it's more, if you start changing your mindset and think what's the worst that's going to happen, which I will say is totally different when you're young. And I think like... 100%. Yeah. I think it's a lot harder if you have families. But at the same time, I have met tons of founders, my last founder included, who just had a son... And he's like, I'm not going to put my life on hold to have this company. And I really respected that. But I will say, if you have kids, you know, or family, that's, I think that's why I've always admired Elon Musk. He puts like all of his money after his success back in the business. Yeah. And he has a family of four or five kids already. Right, right. Like but that's a level of tenacity that is insane. It is. And it's also an indication of where his priorities are, right? Yeah. Like ultimately... I mean, it's a contentious thing to ask, but ultimately, is he going to be the best dad when he's running? He's CEO of what two companies? Yeah. He's running three, and you know, it, it, Tesla could have easily gone to zero. SpaceX could have easily gone to zero. Then he'd be the schmuck that wasted his fortune on yeah. two ludicrous ideas no, and left his family destitute. So right. I completely agree with you. It's so hard to do if you if you're if you have children, and I think seeing for example Elon's behavior I don't know the guy so I don't know why I'm calling him Elon but <laughs> seeing seeing his behavior from afar you can see that he is motivated and compelled not really by logic right because otherwise he wouldn't have put his whole wealth into this you know he wouldn't continue to add more companies and run more companies while also building a family you know yeah. so it's like I think a lot of us are just driven to do this um I can tell you, though, for me, like, the big thing that I have learned about myself is that I had no idea what my own work ethic was until it was solely on my shoulders to generate my own opportunities and success. And, like, I think that that's the beautiful, unique thing about being a founder. No, it's on nobody else. And what that means is, one, you have the massive stress that we talked about. But in return, what you get, you don't get a grading system. There's no grades, right? You go through, we, we all get formed in this education system of like, if you want to get an A, you have to figure out the minimum amount of work to do to get your A, right? You're, you're always, in economics, we call this term satisficing. You're always satisficing. You're always basically trying to figure out what's the right equilibrium of work where the answer is minimum to get the desired outcome, whether that's a B or an A or a, you know, whatever GPA it might be, right? And once you get into the real world, especially when you become a founder, like there is no cap to the upside. There is no, there is no maximum amount of ARR you can achieve in your first five years as a company, right? There's no maximum valuation. There's no maximum success or growth rate. Those are all infinite if you can achieve them. And I think what I realized when I became a founder was that I actually work amazingly hard, which I never knew, because I had never been in a situation in life until that point where I had unlimited upside and the input was my own work. Um, and so I think that a lot of people probably underestimate their own potential as a founder, um, which is why I just, just start a thing. And then, so I guess what given the unlimited upside, when do you think you'll have hit that level of success? What does success with Rainforest look like to you? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and do you value it to be like, oh, it's an IPO, or, you know, or is it more internal? Like it's when I see 
businesses change and we make them better? I mean, I think, I think for Rainforest as a company, you know, I think we've seen that. I'm interested in hard to answer questions. That's like what my life is about. I'm interested in that. And for me, the reason that I'm waking up every day in the morning to give 100% of my, you know, 8 till 6 p.m. energy to Rainforest is because Rainforest represents this question of can we build a 99th percentile SaaS company while also being a great place to work? And no matter how you slice it, no matter which corporate prospectuses or you know, public company CEOs you listen to, nobody has done that yet. Nobody has built a great place to work that is also super, super high-performing business. And that might just be the realities of Dunbar's number. I don't know. But that's the key question that underpins Rainforest. That's the thing that we're really interested in. And so that's what I'm focused on here, you know? And, and that's, the, that's the thing that is what gets me up in the morning. So for us, success will be, I think, some external milestone, whether it's, you know, getting to 100 million ARR, whether it's IPOing, whether it's a particular acquisition or something. Like, it will be some external milestone and then us looking internally and saying, are we actually still a great place to work or not? And if we can say yes to both of those things, then we'll have succeeded our goals. Yeah. All right, let's end uh, with a few fun questions. So what, I normally ask people this in smaller markets, what is their favorite startup in their area? But we can just, you know, what's your favorite startup anywhere? Anywhere. I mean, you could, you could narrow it down to San Francisco, but that doesn't really <laughs> narrow it down. Favorite startup. Like one that you love that you oh, tell your man. friends about. Oh, man. So for me, it's funny. There's two, and they're both HR-related. <laughs> so one is Pecan. So is that a pain point for you, then? I mean, yeah. We care about our people, and we're now at the point where we're, two, like we're 85 people or something. So we're now at the point where I don't just know. I just don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, like I know with some people, not with everyone. So anyway, my first one is Pecon, P-E-A-K-O-N. They're London-based. Um, I think maybe originally from like Denmark or something. But anyway, they basically give you a platform to survey your entire staff and give an EMPS report. And this EMPS, like employee EMPS, and the employee EMPS report, you can slice and dice by manager, by what motivates them, by demographics. So it basically gives you a data view into how your company is feeling. And as part of this, they ask the respondents like, okay, how much autonomy do you feel day to day? How well does your manager communicate company level strategy? How do you feel about our values? And so we just get this constant stream, which becomes a feedback loop, right? This constant stream of input into how to make our company better over time. And like since turning that stream on, like at the start of this year, I mean, we are a much better company. No, I love that because when you're a small company, and the reason why I love always the seed state is because you can go to things like team dinners and just figure that out. Yep. But then it's the next stage, right? How do you, you can't stay like that forever. You have to you know, fly up to Neverland and grow up, or fly away from Neverland, I guess. Yep. And, uh, I think that actually gives you the insight, you know, are you feeling empowered? Are you feeling challenged? Do you like your work? I'm a big believer in 360 feedback as well. Yep. So, yep. So um, to that end, yeah. the second one is my friend um, Jack's company, and his company is called Lattice, 
Um, if you haven't interviewed Jack, you should. But um, anyway, Lattice is basically um, performance reviews, but done nicely. And we have tried a bunch of the software on the market. We probably ended up going with something that was a bit too enterprisey for our our scale and our co- like our company, and mm-hmm. nobody used it. <laughs> and so um, we just ran an executive team 360 with Lattice. Um, and so we all, including me on the exec team, did our, a 360 for each other. And it was amazingly good, like amazing. Like simple u- user experience, well-designed, smart onboarding, good support. Um, I was very, very impressed. I've been talking with Jack for a few years now, you know, about SaaS stuff. And it's just a really smart guy that is building a really good company. If I was, if I was, if I had any money, I would invest it in Lattice right now. Great. Yeah. And then if you could interview one founder, who would you most want to interview and why? Oh, man. I mean, the real answer is I'd like to interview Trump and find out why he's just such a fuckhead. <laughs> but... Do you know my last person said that too? Yeah. Mainly because he said, I think I can persuade him. Yeah. Maybe. I just want to debate him on a public stage and just embarrass him. But no, um, who, which founder would I actually like to interview? I mean, you know, to be honest, there's not that many founders that are very inspirational to me because I think that everyone has their own unique journey. I think that I would probably wouldn't be doing any of this if it weren't for Steve Jobs, to Mm -hmm. be honest. And I didn't like read Steve Jobs' biography and be like, that's who I want to be. Fuck that. I was like, wow, this guy is a fucking asshole. <laughs> but I did, the only reason I got into design and programming in the first place is because we got a, a family iMac. And I was so amazed at the beauty of this object that I was like, I must be able to create beautiful things with this. And so I started learning to design because the family had an iMac. You know, and I just think about the impact that Apple and Steve Jobs had on our entire economy and our entire culture. You know, I think that we forget very often in, in the Valley, like for most people, the iPhone, the iPad, the Mac, like for most people, at least a decade ago, this was really the only well-designed part of their life that they had, you know? And like I'm coming from Europe where people are obsessive about functional design for all aspects of life, right? Here, it's like, oh my God, you go into a government agency or you go into a car rental business, you try and use a fucking ATM? It's disgusting. It's like the user experience is not considered. You have the doctor (laughs) office, same thing. Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so for me, like the fact that our world has changed because of that one person's vision and he, that one person's like relentless desire for perfection, that to me is amazing. And I would never want to be like Steve Jobs. I would never want anyone to think any of the things that they thought about working for Steve Jobs, to be yeah. honest. But I would also really like to understand the man himself. And I would ask him basically about whether he understood about whether he understood what he was doing to his team and whether it was a deliberate choice. I think that's what I'm really fascinated by. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Here to have you. Yeah. 
All right, that's it for this week's episode. Be sure to check us out at 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders to stay up to date. I'm your host, Chrissy Costa, and I'll see you next week for another episode. Thank you.